Hello! This is the Q&A episode of Slate Money, normally your guide to the business and finance news of the week. This week, your answer to all of your questions about business, finance, and anything else that you want to ask me, Felix Salmon of Axios, Emily Peck of the Huffington Post, or indeed Anna Shemansky, who is going to answer the one question we have all had of Anna Shemansky. That's going to be up at the end of the episode. We're going to talk about gold. We're going to talk about certificates of deposit. We're going to talk about the Fed funds, futures. We're going to talk about all manner of stuff. What else are we talking about? RSUs. RSUs. Lots of acronyms. There are lots there of acronyms. There are acronyms up the <laughs> Beto wall. Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> Beto O'Rourke. We're going to talk about all manner of things. And for Slate Plus, we are going to give you our hottest podcast recommendations. You might be surprised at what Emily listens to. Uh, all that coming up on Sleep Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, let's start with Nicholas Canzanari. Thank you very much for writing in. Nicholas, you have such a good question. I love this question. CDs you say, not the little circular discs that play music, but the certificates of deposit offered by banks. CDs seem totally pointless as a savings vehicle, large amounts of money locked up for a pittance of an interest rate. Are CDs pointless? Yes. 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 Okay, that's that one. (laughs) (laughs) I have to laugh because I actually had this conversation with a friend this week where I was trying to convince him to not put money in CDs. So, okay, can you, because... CDs are not so much a thing where I come from in the British Isles. Why are they a thing here? And is there like a historical reason why they used to be a good idea? They used to be a better idea when rates were really high. I mean, when you had much higher rates and you could lock in a high... It's not so much high rates so much as a steep yield curve, right? You need need rates to be higher for the longer term. Yes, and that's actually, yeah, I mean, that's significant because you want to be able to, in theory, reinvest consistently at a higher rate. They used to be a great way of locking up money that you didn't need for a couple of years and getting a non-negligible amount of interest Mm -hmm. on it. Now, with a flat yield curve or even an inverted yield curve, locking up your money for a bunch of time makes no sense. No, the rates on CDs and the rates you just get for putting your money in a savings account are basically the same right right now. You can and you're you're not yeah. You can get two point five, two point six percent in savings accounts Mm -hmm. right now, especially online savings accounts. Good Mm -hmm. luck trying to find that in the CD. You'd have to put away like like $60,000, $75,000 to get that. So yeah, they don't make sense right now. They don't make sense when the yield curve is flat or inverted. They don't make a huge amount of sense, except the only way in which they make any sense at all is on a behavioral level, Mm -hmm. that you have literally put your money somewhere where you can't touch it. And it stops For you savings. from it stops you from reading your savings. Yeah. Whereas if you have your money in a savings account and you suddenly go, Oh, my cat went to the vet and now I need five hundred bucks and I don't have it in my checking account, I'll just take it from my savings, then you lose that savings. For me, your cat's still gonna go to the vet and if you can't take it out of your C D, you're just gonna wind up borrowing it on a credit exactly. card and you're yeah. better off taking it out of your savings anyway. Yeah, so and if you're locking up money, you should get a liquidity premium. <laughs> you shouldn't be paying for it. Mm-hmm. So yes, Nicholas, you're absolutely right. CDs are silly and why bother? Next, Emily, why don't you ask the next question? Uh, you, you get to open up a present of your choosing. Okay. Um, from, from Liz Weeks. She actually asked two questions and I liked both of them. So let's. Should we do them one, one and then the yeah, other? Yeah. Thank okay. you, Liz. So the first question is RSUs are ubiquitous at tech companies. So it feels broadly relevant and something most of my non tech friends know nothing about because they are paid in. Real money. So if a CD is not a compact disc, I'm going to have to explain what an RSU is. An RSU is a, a 
Technically, it stands for restricted stock unit, but basically it's equity. It's stock. Yes. So she says, my salary is wages plus RSUs. At first, I thought this was great. I stick around and get a bite at some healthy stock and it increased greatly over time. It did make it more difficult to consider leaving my company, but felt fair. Then I started getting annual reviews with minimal wage increases because I was, quote, near the top end of the undisclosed range for my job level. Okay, fine. But this keeps happening and it feels more and more... Like RSUs are a great bet against me sticking around so they don't have to pay me more for the next year, but I leave money on the table if I leave before vesting at year two. It's absolutely true. This is RSUs are a wonderful way for companies to get awesome talent effectively on the cheap because Mm -hmm. there's a stick in the carrot. The carrot is we'll give you stock in the future. And it vests over like a four-year vesting cycle. So in order for you to get, we'll give you all of these RSUs, but you don't actually own them until four years is up. So you have every incentive to stick around for four years because only after four years do you get all of this money that you kind of sort of were given on day one. So they don't need to worry so much about you leaving for the first four years that you're at the company because they gave you all that stock and that's kind of a golden handcuff. And then the wonderful thing from this, company's perspective is stock is the currency they print you know they can print as much of this as they like it doesn't cost them anything to do this and yet like it keeps you sticking around and then as you as you say as she says in terms of the carrot like you can find a much higher paying job somewhere else you should probably be getting higher pay rises than you are you can feel a bit unhappy about the way you're being treated about the amount your pay is going up and somehow because of this stock-based compensation system, you wind up sticking around and feeling miserable. That doesn't feel good to me. I mean, that said, you could still, if you like your employer and you're relatively happy, it's an opportunity for you to get a big chunk of money four years from your start date that you normally, you know, it's like we're, it's like a forced savings, basically. It's money you never would have put away, you know, maybe. Right. Potentially, and, yeah. And so if you're happy there, it's like, it's a pretty valuable thing. And it's not like if you, if you switch jobs and you say to them, I make X amount of money, plus I have this stock coming in the future. Like, I don't think most employers would say, oh, then I'm going to pay you all this money more and count your RSUs. Like, can well, I, yeah, I, mean, can, I, I, can I, I say how RSUs are gendered? Yeah. Yeah. Emily's Emily is super interested in this. Basically, RSUs are great if you have no dependents. Because at that point, you know, especially if you're like the archetypal, you know, twenty something tech bro in Silicon Valley, your day to day living expenses are relatively low and you get to get a whole bunch of stock just like accumulating and you get rich after four years and you're happy. Whereas if you're like a mom or if you have parents who you're looking after, or if you have, or even if you're a dad for that matter, and you have kids who you need to you know, look after and all the rest of it, often you would actually rather have the cash. And a salary is more important to you than future capital gains or future windfalls. I think you'd always be better having the cash. Yeah. I mean, just in general, it's always better to have the cash. And the other issue here too is that well, not always. That's the whole point about the tech bros, right? Is that the tech bros who, you know, are working these insane hours, slaving over a hot laptop and basically have very low expenses, they kind of like the lottery ticket aspect of the RSUs, which is that they can make way more money on the RSUs than they ever could in salary. And the downside of not getting the cash is like, well, you know, I'm so what? I don't have that many obligations. So yes, if... The alternative here is you're paid far more in RSUs than you would be paid in cash, and you're able to stay around long enough to Mm -hmm. make that. Then Mm -hmm. yes, agreed. But my point is, if the option is that you're going to be given this money in cash, or you're going to be given this money in RSUs. Well, that's never the option. Right. But I'm just saying, like, yeah. So on the one hand, RSUs are better than stock options. Like, that's certainly true. But one of the things that's different about RSUs and stock options, besides that RSUs obviously don't have an exercise price, is that there's a taxable event when you're given these RSUs, right? But then you are essentially either forced to liquidate something if you have because you're now being taxed at a higher like marginal tax rate because of the value of these RSUs, even though you haven't actually been given the cash. Yeah. So the, the, it's, the, that's the, what the, I mean. The tax treatment actually is not great. 
I'm not entirely convinced that RSUs are better than options. Certainly, if the stock price goes down, then RSUs are better than options because you get something right. rather mm -hmm. than nothing. But on the other hand, as Anna says, the tax treatment is often better with options. And so long as your options are priced enough like in the money that you're going to wind up with something. I think a lot of the time I'd be happier with options, to be honest, as long as the vesting schedule was the same. Well, that's, and that's the issue, though, is that, like, yes, of course, in the world where your options are in the money, then yes, but you don't have that certainty that they're going to be in the money. And that, so in the sense, RSUs are always more valuable then. So I didn't finish the question. Oh, my <laughs> God. Is there more to the question? Well, she says, I have a good situation, as most tech workers do, and I'm grateful. I also think my situation is similar to a lot of people working at these companies, so it isn't me specific. I have no idea what the salary range actually is and if I should negotiate stronger on the wage front or what. So should she ask for a higher salary? Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, the RSUs aren't a sure thing. Yes. And and the other thing is the RSU is a bet on the health of the company. Yes, yes. exactly. And you startup, are you already massively overexposed yes. to the health of the company. Uh -huh. Exactly. If you are an yes. employee of the company, your entire livelihood is already contingent on the health of the company. Mm -hmm. So the last thing you need is to right. double down on that and have exactly. even more of your like net worth being contingent on the wealth of the company. Absolutely. In that situation, when you're having your salary negotiation and they're saying, well, do you want this in cash or RSUs? And maybe even if the cash is worth less than the RSUs, take the cash. Good. But what was question number two? Oh, speaking of gendered things, Liz Weeks also writes that she is reading Invisible Women by Caroline Perez. What are your thoughts on the economic costs or benefits of data geared towards men? Is GDP an appropriate measurement for this? For example, the first chapter talks about public transportation envisioning the predominantly male journey of home, work, home, and how there are costs to cities that don't envision the, quote, chaining travel behavior of women, i.e. that they often do home, daycare, work, errand, errand, daycare, home, or something like that. So basically, can we talk about gendered data? And, and yeah, and where the hell is Kathy O'Neill? Because she <laughs> really should be answering this question. But the answer is absolutely, and it's far more than just commutes. It's, you it's know, everything. It's yeah, GDP. It's like crash test dummies. Mm -hmm, it's, yes. It's Drug testing. every algorithm ever right. invented. The base case customer consumer that the algos model always seems to be a man. Mm -hmm. And that cannot be good for GDP because women wind up getting the you know short end of the stick. And I mean, this is especially an issue in the developing world. Right. Because like, quite literally, we don't know that a lot of women exist. Right. And they're far less likely to have identity cards. They're far less likely to have phones, which is now how we can figure out other people. And a lot of women are also much more apt to work in the informal economy. Right. So that that work that is that contribution to the economy is not being recorded. Right. The labor that women do is often it's it's not included in GDP often. Well, it's not. It's, it's always that joke about like if you marry your housekeeper, all of a sudden it's no longer part of GDP. Right. And in Developing economies, this is especially the case, not even just in housework, but so much work that women do is not in the traditional labor market or it's, an, it's in the informal market. Right. And, and then and beyond so, yeah. economic data, there's also health data. Yes. Like, for example, when tracking death rates for women for a long time, they didn't record whether the woman was pregnant or not. So maternal mortality is like one of these wonky numbers that has gotten that has changed over time as people figured out, oh, that's maybe something, you know, we should keep track of. And there's drug testing that's done primarily on men and has different effects in women's bodies. So drugs and pharmaceuticals, this is a widespread problem. There's also the tech industry and the automobile industry, which Felix was just talking about before, where airbags were created with like your average man in mind and not women. And they were dangerous, I think, when first deployed for women because their bodies are smaller and, you know, they were more likely to get injured from from the airbags that weren't designed with them in mind at all. And, and don't to, forget air conditioning. And to go back to the question, the design of public transportation systems is fascinating and it's not entirely gendered but it's partly gendered it's partly that men are more likely to do the home to work to home thing but it's partly just the lack of imagination of city planners in terms of like the kind of transportation needs that people without cars have 
And one of the ways that you can tell how good a public transportation system is, is by looking at how many buses there are and how good the buses are. Because if you have a rail-based system, on some level, it is always, nearly always going to be kind of hub and spokey, that you're going to have a CBD of some description and a bunch of spokes pointing out towards the places where people live. And people can, you know, sit on their rails and travel the rails into the middle and then do their work and then travel the rails out. And some people do that. And that's great for them. But for everyone else, it doesn't work. And in fact, the number of people who need that, who have that as their primary use case, is much lower as a percentage of the total population than you might think. That not everyone works. Most people don't work. When they do work, they don't always work in the CBD. And there's a huge amount of travel that happens just from neighborhood to neighborhood where the rails are of no use whatsoever. And the way that you provide the infrastructure for that is by that buses. is so true because there is so much like in the suburb where I live. It's like taking the kids to sports, going to the sports game, back and forth to the store, to play dates, da 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 da. There's no, and I, you know, I live near a great Metro North station that goes in Which and out is of the useless city, to you. but that's completely useless if you want to actually get around and do the invisible labor, un, the untracked, uncharted labor that, you know, women and increasingly some men do. So that's a really interesting point. And so, yeah, the, the most interesting and most ahead of the curve public transportation systems are the ones which really invest in, in buses and create dedicated bus lanes mm -hmm. and often free buses and this kind of thing. And, and that's, you know... It's not shiny in the way that mm -hmm. trains are. And the upper middle classes often get very snobbish about buses and refuse to take them. But buses are awesome. We love buses here sure? on Slate Money. Yeah. When was the last time you took a bus? Uh, quite recently, actually. Yeah, yeah I've taken buses in the city. I, I mean, like, you both the, live in New York City. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fine, exactly. Fine, fine. Yeah, cross town on 72nd. That's a good one. Well, never take a cross town bus in New York. No. I mean, well, <laughs> if you do it late enough. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, What's next? Let's see. I could do a very short mathy one. Okay. <laughs> let's. All right. Anna Shamansky, let's do some math. Okay. So Tom Jones, good name, uh, wrote in. It's and not a <laughs> Sorry, you've heard that a million times. I would just like I to apologize. point out there is rosé in the studio. <laughs> I am not drinking, but uh, I'm the only one. Um, okay. So he asks... How are Fed funds futures used to forecast the probability of an interest rate cut? What does the phrase, the market has priced in a 75% chance of a quarter point rate cut actually mean? Great question. <laughs> it is, and I think this is a particularly good question because of what's been happening recently. So, okay. So the way you do this is that you take whatever like the current Fed funds target rate is. So let's say right now, let's say 2.15. Okay. Then you say, when is the next meeting where you anticipate that there's going to be either a rate cut or a rate increase? So let's say the meeting's at the end of September. Okay. So then you take the Fed funds futures contract from the following month, October. Okay. Because the rate change would be at the end of September. So you take that October contract and you look up the price of that contract. So let's say the price of that contract is like 98 0.09. What that means is that you take 100 minus 98.09, and that gives you 1.91. Yes. Wow. Which, I'm good at math. Exactly. That is the implied rate. Okay. Okay. So then you say, well, currently they say the rate, our current rate is target rate is 2.15. After this next meeting, it's going to be 1.91. Or so the market thinks. Or so the market thinks. So that is going to be a difference of 24 basis points. So if you want to determine the probability of that rate, in this instance, the rate cut, which you would assume would be 25 basis points, right. you take 24 divided by 25, which gives you like 96%. Let's do Steve B. 
Stevie B asks, if two currencies are pegged, then how does one keep that peg? If a gap opens, there should be huge arbitrage opportunities. How does one resist those without going broke? I ask in the context of these cryptocurrency stable coins. Some of them have a substantial float out there, and it seems like they couldn't afford to hold that much real currency as backing and wouldn't make any money if they did so. Yes, you are so right, Steve. There is a thing called a currency board. There's a man out there. His name is Steve Hankey. He's really into currency boards. Argentina had one for a while, which pegged the Argentine peso one-to-one to the dollar. And literally what they did was they had a bank account with dollars in it. And every peso in circulation was backed by one dollar in that bank account. And that was a real peg. And if you converted your pesos for dollars, you basically handed in your pesos and you got the dollars which were in the bank account. And if you bought pesos with dollars, you would put dollars into the bank account and get pesos in return. And pesos were just a token reflecting a deposit in that bank account, which was worth $1. And with cryptocurrency stablecoins, that's normally the idea that if you buy a Tether, at least in Tether 1.0, when Tether, when people believed in, you know, the functioning of Tether, that was exactly the idea, that every single tether was backed by an actual dollar in an actual bank account. And then people started asking, well, where's the bank? And how much money does it have in it? And is the number of dollars in that bank the same as the number of tethers? And then the answer started getting complicated. And so we won't go into tether. But the answer is that, yeah, at some point, you can have a currency peg which isn't actually pegged to physical currency. So, for instance, I want to say like a well, so Ecuador's not a currency peg. They just use a dollar. But right. to, I want to say Belize. Belize has like a fixed two to one exchange rate with the dollar. And they don't have a big bank account with a whole bunch of dollars in it. They just fix that. And then if you want to buy Belizean dollars, you give them a US dollar and you get two Belizean dollars in exchange. And if you want to sell Belizean dollars for US dollars, you give them two Belizean dollars and you get $1 back. And that's just the central bank doing that transaction with whatever money they have on hand. And that works until it doesn't. So I am a man of a certain, an Englishman of a certain age. And I remember when George Soros decided to attack the pound. The pound had a peg against the euro and, or, you know, whatever it was at the time, the Deutschmark. And that's what the Bank of England did. It would just say, we will buy Deutschmarks and sell Deutschmarks at this rate. We have this peg. And George Soros decided that it was unsustainable. And so he started just selling and selling and selling a bunch of pounds and buying and buying and buying a bunch of Deutschmarks. And the Bank of England had to borrow and borrow and borrow more and more Deutschmarks to sell him. And eventually they ran out of money and the pound crashed and George Soros made a billion dollars in one day. And that was like the beginning of the hedge fund industry, basically. So you're absolutely right that like if these things look unsustainable, then they probably are and they won't live forever. Yes, correct. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right on. <laughs> what? Here's a question. If you peg your peso one-to-one -one with the dollar, why bother having a peso? Well, that's exactly where Ecuador went. And they said, why bother having an Ecuadorian, what was it, the currency? Was it the peso? Anyway, Ecuador had a currency, mm -hmm. which I went to Ecuador and spent, and I've completely forgotten what it was called. And then they decided that they wanted to change it. And instead of doing a currency peg, they did exactly what you said. And they said, we're just going to use dollars. Yeah. Um, which means you don't have control over your you, own monetary right. policy. But you but don't have control. Yeah, there are a number of problems. One to one, yeah. You don't have control anyway. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so everyone, now when you're in Ecuador, everyone's just using dollars. Rad. And so that's one option. But as It's not ideal. <laughs> Anna says, like, you need the if, flexibility. if the Fed decides that it needs to raise interest rates to, you know, curb hyperinflation in the US and you know and, and Ecuador needs monetary stimulus Ecuador is shit out of luck yeah. because the Fed has made it absolutely clear that the only economy they care about is the US and they don't care about any other economy using the dollar right Emily pick a question any question okay this is from Ted Holiday I wanted to ask about an exchange that happened during the first democratic presidential debate that seems to have escaped much tension Beto O'Rourke was asked whether he supported AOC's proposal for a 70% marginal income tax rate. 
after a digression into Spanish, O'Rourke <laughs> got around to saying that he did not support the 70% rate, but instead supported taxing capital as income. Subsequently, O'Rourke clarified to John Harwood on CNBC that he supports returning to the 39% top marginal income bracket, but also taxing capital gains as income. I did some Googling about the concept of taxing capital gains as income. I wasn't able to find too much about the idea aside from this old blog post by Felix. <laughs> Can you talk about any merits or problems with O'Rourke's proposal? And I should say in the second Democratic debate, in this in the second second Democratic debate, the, you know, the second night, I think one of the candidates who we don't know his name because there are so many also said, I don't support blah, blah, this wealth tax. I support taxing capital gains as income. So I think it's mm-hmm. not just O'Rourke. There's a couple right. of, yeah. the, of these. So men. basically there are two ways of making money. You can make money the old-fashioned way, which is just like go out and do work and be paid. And you're like, I earn $25 an hour. I worked for four hours. I made $100. And congratulations, you now have $100 of income. Alternatively, you can go into the stock market and buy a stock for $1,000 and see it go up by 10%. And then it's $1,100 and you sell it for $1,100 and you have made $100. And that is one hundred dollars of capital gains. Now, you might think that if you've made a hundred dollars either way, you should pay the same tax on it either way. But no, for reasons that I have to admit mildly elude me, but I can basically tell you what they are, which is that rich people write all of the rules. The hundred dollars that you make by speculating in the stock market is taxed at a lower rate than the hundred dollars that you make by working your little tushy off. And that is great for rich people who make most of their money in the stock market. It doesn't seem to make much sense for anyone else. So I ultimately agree that we should actually tax capital gains at the same in income. So just to just I want to state that. <laughs> <laughs> but part of the reason in theory that people say you should tax capital gains at a lower rate is because we want to encourage investment. Now, it's not mm. that we don't want to. And look, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm just <laughs> I mean, saying that like, it's, it's, say it's, that, it's the same reason why economists traditionally say that corporate tax should be zero. But what are you zero. going to do with your money if you don't invest it? Can't get a CD. Can't put in a CD. We just covered that. <laughs> I, I mean, like the alternative <laughs> is, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm serious. Here. Yeah. The alternative to investment is consumption. The alternative is instead of taking that $1000 and investing it in IBM stock, I'm taking I'm going to take that $1000 and and buy like an IBM computer. And as far as the economy is concerned, the economy is actually better off if I buy the computer than if I buy the IBM stock. And so if you're encouraging investment, what that basically means is you're encouraging me to not go out and spend that money. You're investing me to just you know, invest it in the stock market. And investing in in the stock market might be good for stocks. It might be good for stock prices. But if you really want to boost the economy, you should spend it in the economy. Well, part of the reason you want to increase the capital stock, you want to increase the amount of money that is available to fund companies is because that is what enables the economy to truly grow. Now, of course, consumption is involved. And especially in the US, consumption is obviously the biggest part of our economy. But in terms of traditional economic theory, in the way that you are able to get an economy to grow is by having people invest money so that companies can use that in order to hire people, to buy factories, to... But there is, there is just to be clear about this, there is no evidence that having lower capital gains rates is a great way of doing that. I, so and and even Anna Shemansky says that capital gains should be taxed at the same rate as income. So that's what they mean, is that there's this weird loophole for rich people that means that they pay lower taxes on their income than most of the rest of us do because they make income from money rather than from labor. And can I just lap something? So I was looking because... Um, <laughs> because I knew we were going to be talking about this. I was like, oh, so because I this is something that I've kind of believed for a while, just like it, there's a lot of really actual good empirical evidence. And so I was like, OK, let's see if there's any empirical evidence that, in fact, having lower capital gains taxes is a good thing. And I had to laugh because I think it was like the Keto Institute or something. They were like, well, but if you compare where capital gains taxes were in 1977 and where they were in 2007 and you look at the revenues that the, the government was able to collect, clearly having that lower capital gains tax was better. And I'm like, 
we're comparing 1977 to 2007. <laughs> Let's think about what was happening in the economy at those two times and think how that may not be the best use of data there, Cato Institute. So, I mean, just morally, it's, people who work and sweat for their money should pay less than people who just sit on their asses. Well, that's not that's not really the, I mean, that's that's not actually true. I mean, like <laughs> yes, it is. No, it's not. But I. <laughs> But I do think that ultimately, especially if we're thinking. Really? Really? You think that someone who just sitting by passively letting their money grow in the stock market should pay lower taxes? No, than I don't who think is that. Working, contributing. I just to don't the think that. And- I agree with you. I, I don't think that they should pay lower taxes. I just think that the idea that investment is just there's no benefit for the overall economy. No. That's, uh, that, no, but that's, that's that's a straw man. No, no, but what you were saying is I'm, I'm not just saying there's s- no benefit. On, no one is saying No, no, that. but what I was saying is she was saying, oh, you're just kind of sitting on your butt waiting for things to but come. But that's well, true. That's all you're doing. <laughs> in terms of labor, that is all you're doing. In terms of labor, yes. But right. in terms of like, that's not necessarily, well, well, though, but you are also <laughs> taking a risk and we reward risk in a capitalist economy. That's true. So that is also... So just taking saying. a risk in the coal mines every day, Anna. <laughs> yes, because we're we're all coal miners. I, I, yeah, I gave up my the coal mining mines. job to become a podcaster. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's do... Gold? Want to gold? Oh, yeah, let's do gold. That's a good one. Brian Donovan asks, what is the purpose in the modern world of depository gold, the gold held by central banks or governments. It seems that it is almost never sold, so gold traders don't count it as part of the float, other than we have it because we have always had it. If it is never actually sold and rarely bought, then in a world of fiat currency, what is the purpose of nation states keeping it? Why do countries own um, technical term is a fuck ton <laughs> of gold. And um, again, Ryan, like there's like an implicit assumption behind this question that depository gold doesn't make a huge amount of sense. And it might be a bit of an anachronism. And you want us to explain like why that assumption might be false and like why there's actually a purpose to this. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but depository gold is an anachronism and it makes no sense. That's not entirely true. No, I mean, part of the reason that you still have gold is basically for the case of extreme crises. That's why you still have gold, because in the event of an extreme crisis, you want something that has value that has no counterparty risk. Because essentially, if you're holding treasuries or whatever, there is a solvency risk. There is not a solvency risk with gold. Of the course o- there is. What the hell are you going to do with your gold if you need money except for sell it to a counterparty? Yeah, I don't get it. Right. But the point the point is that you would it would still have a value. It would when and well, number 1. But when the zombie well, no, 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 apocalypse no. comes? <laughs> yes. Okay, well like No one is going to want gold. Well, Okay. It's just, it's a, just a, well, it's not a, valuable as the dollars or whatever. So the issue in the true crisis. So right. and the also the, it's very heavy. Yeah, no. you're just gonna lose your gold in the zombie. Someone, just, a run. zombie is gonna steal it. Like it's, it, you can't <laughs> run fast when you're carrying gold. If you want to run fast, you got to drop your gold and run. Yeah. So in the event of the zombie apocalypse, uh, yes, probably <laughs> essentially guns and butter, right? But. When we're talking about the type of crises we have historically had. <laughs> then what of- happens is you get a massive flight to quality and U.S. Treasury bonds will go up in value. Recently, yes, I'll agree with you. But the idea is, <laughs> uh, look, I'm not saying that this is the greatest thing, but I'm saying there is there is a somewhat of a logic behind this. And the other logic. The, the, this no, is- no, I mean, because the alternative, let's just be very clear about this. The alternative is to do what every single central bank does in much, much order of magnitude greater quantity than holding gold, which is holding U.S. Treasury bonds. Exactly. Now- And U.S. Treasury bonds pay interest, which is something which gold doesn't do. And that that is actually very true. Part of the reason, though, you have gold as well is because of the idea that in the event of a crisis, when a lot of assets might be going down, also 
you can use that gold as collateral in order to get other types of currency that you might need. So a lot of it has to do with the fact that gold has historically had value. And I agree with you that the fact that gold has value is doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, it, there is, that, that is there, is, there is one other answer here, which I have Diversification about, which is, is yes. American soft power. And specifically, let's say that you're Venezuela. And for political reasons, you may or may not want to own a whole bunch of treasury bonds. But even if you do own a whole bunch of treasury bonds and you're the Venezuelan government and you're in a cash crisis and the U.S. government has placed you on the OFAC list, then trying to find a primary broker dealer with whom you can engage to sell your treasury bonds and receive dollars in exchange and use those dollars to placate your restive population is non-trivial because all of those broker dealers are active in the United States and they don't want to deal with you. So if you're Venezuela or if you're even worried about the risk that the United States might treat you as though you were Venezuela, then on some level, you are better off with gold because you can just sell that gold than you are with treasury bonds because with treasury bonds, you have to sell them to someone in America and there are banks in America who won't deal with you. This actually happened um, under Chavez. This wasn't even under Maduro. Chavez decided that he wanted a bunch of his gold back and his gold was held on deposit in London. And he brought it back to Venezuela. And to this day, no one entirely knows how he moved those like 35 tons of gold from London to Venezuela. I believe they might have actually been held in um, quite a famous vault underneath the bank NM Rothschild and Son, but they might have been in the Bank of England. I'm not sure. Bank of England and NM Rothschilds both have a lot of gold. But it's this is one of the things that I've always wanted to do if I ever had a spare like few weeks to chase a random story is try and work out like when Venezuela moved all that gold from England to Venezuela like, how did they do it Axios should give you a few weeks to figure that yeah. out I, huge indeed. story really interesting but yeah um the one part of depository gold that does make financial sense is is Rothschilds in London they sit on this gold vault it's highly secure and they do a gold fixing every day and they set the price of gold every day and they charge all the people who own the gold interest basically every month for storing their gold for them and they um they make it it's remember that whole thing we that whole discussion we had about safety deposit boxes adam rothschilds basically has safety deposit boxes just for gold sounds cool to just go visit and see you should you should give them a ring (laughs) can i just say one other thing and then we can end this is that you also can't talk about gold and not mention also that historically gold has had a negative correlation with other assets that you would hold. So the idea is that when your other assets are declining in value, your gold is going to be increasing in value. And historically that the volatility has been, I mean, gold actually is very volatile, but the volatility is different than the other assets you mm-hmm. hold. So if you hold them together overall, that makes your portfolio less volatile. And, that, and, and, a, can yeah. I, and can I, I just want to add finally, which is a very important part of why a bunch of central banks own gold, it's shiny. <laughs> And what's up with people all the... like shiny things? Well, is and... that why all the Republican men, the like really fringy, weird ones, like I think Ted Cruz and maybe that other guy, Judy Herbie. Shelton? Yeah, they're all super into going back to the gold. Well, standard. no, that like, has to do with hawkish monetary thing. policy. No, that but, has to but, do with the idea of actually also, constricting government spending. It also, it also has to do with the idea of it's shiny. It's, like, I swear <laughs> to God, it's, gotta it, be good. it's the literal shiny object. That's fair, fair, <laughs> shiny. Okay, we are going to end with a question from Nora Grasham. Nora, thank you for this. I'm going to read this out, and Anna is going to answer it. And I'm sorry, Emily, but this is entirely for Anna. I'm so excited about this. I'm ready to listen. I'm really, really curious, says Nora, how Anna would articulate her political monetary philosophy. I feel like she often plays the role of contrarian, but I don't fully grasp the through line to her philosophy yet, and have been wondering for a long term. Thank you for un- asking this, Nora, because you are not the only person. There are at least two other people in the studio who have the same <laughs> question. So, Anna, explain yourself. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes the joke that I'll say if people ask me is I say, like, The Economist magazine. <laughs> That's kind of my philosophy on, on things. But no, like, so when I was young, I was extremely liberal. And then... As I got older, there are still areas where I am quite liberal. I, I am 
socially liberal. My voting pattern is quite liberal. However, from both a combination of working, especially working in finance, and then various things that I've studied, I started to question some of the liberal orthodoxy that I kind of grew up with. And so I try, and I'm not saying I always succeed at this, but I try to come at issues to kind of say, like, what logically makes sense in this instance? Like, by uh, maybe I'll use an example of this to make this make more sense. <laughs> because I, I think part of this is that I don't think I'm the most ideological person in the world. I, I'm sure some people will disagree with that. But if you look at the issue of something like healthcare, I ultimately think we should get to universal healthcare. However, I really, really question programs that are saying we're going to have radical change or that programs that don't seem to be grounded in actual economic data. So I guess my point is that I try to, like the Fed, be data dependent and to kind of look at each issue on its own. And even when we actually do this podcast, the way I prepare is that I'll look at the issue and I always do a pro-con. I try to look up articles on both sides. I put up arguments. Emily, uh, mouth. She has a mouth open. She's like, what? I'm just so interested in your process. No, this is literally <laughs> what I do. And and then I and when it ends, I say, OK, which one of these am I going to argue? And I quite frequently. Is this like end... Boris Johnson pre-Brexit? <laughs> that he, no, write, he writes a column on both sides and then tosses a coin. And, and, I, and I know this is end. probably. I love this. And I know this is probably not going to be very satisfying. But and it's very frequently happened that I will end up in a place that's not where I started. Where I'll say like, okay, well, I thought I was going to go in with this because I do have definitely biases, right? Like I, I am a, in general a fan of markets. I you think that capital investment is a good. thing? I do think capital investment. <laughs> you think is a that good companies thing. should generally grow? Yes, exactly. So there are definitely, definitely the these biases that I come in with, but I, I, I really do legitimately try to consider each issue and what the actual data and also the history suggests. And that's another thing, too. Like, I love history. I, I study it. I was an English major, but I studied history quite a bit. So that's another thing. Like, I, I tend to, when I'm looking at an issue now, very often think of what happened in the past. So I realize this is not a particularly satisfying answer. But if I had to simplify it, I would say, like, maybe like democratic capitalist. If you read The Economist magazine, I agree with them frequently, although not always. So it's somewhat classical liberalism, but not quite. And it's somewhat being a technocrat, but also not always. So I guess my point is that I really do try to look at each issue on its own. So do you have any convictions? Do you have any <laughs> any like load stars? Do you have anything that you actually believe in? <laughs> wow. No, and, and, and that's a, it's a fair question. And I guess, honestly, I am very, very allergic to strong beliefs and ideology. I really am because I think very often when people come in with those, they end up trying to convince other people that two plus two equals five. Like even when the evidence shows that what they believe isn't true, they'll keep saying it because they've established their identity on a particular ideology. And I've even noted this in myself where I and this happened on this show. Even sometimes in the middle of an ep of, of the middle of a segment, I'm not even lying. Where I'm like, I am totally arguing the wrong side of this. Like, I let's Which, legitimately happened, and it's always all right. So that's my examples. question. We need what we need one example. Okay, of yes, it. I, I will tell you. So in an episode we did where we were talking about it wasn't payday lending, but it was similar to payday lending, and I'd kind of gone in with more the idea of like, look, I don't love this part of the market, but for people where there aren't a lot of other great options, like this could you know and. As we were talking about it, I think, Felix, you made some points that, frankly, were good. And, <laughs> wow. and I'm sure you did as well, Emily. And I'm not even going to lie. As we were going on, I, I, in my mind, I'm like, I am not arguing that it's <laughs> But I was kind of like, I'm in. I'm dug in. I'm dug in. And, and, I've, and I found that every time on the show where I found myself at a place where I'm like, I'm not sure if I, my argument is, it's always because I went into ideological. So I've tried to not do that. So in terms of things that I ultimately believe in, I mean, like, in general, you know, I, I believe in, like, you know, basic human rights. <laughs> and I, I believe in 
at this stage, I think capitalism makes a lot of sense. But you know what? If we got to a place where, you know, the robots could do everything and there was no longer scarcity, then maybe we wouldn't need capitalism. My point is that it's based on what we need now. Part of the reason I'm very supportive of capitalism is because I think history has shown and current world has shown that it is the best way to increase the living standard for the most people. Okay. On that which note. amazing. That's amazing. Thank, thank, you, thank you. Thank you, Anna. We now understand you. <laughs> We have peered deep into your soul in a way that we've never managed to do before. So thank you for that answer. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to start the numbers round with 800 million. It's the number of Australian dollars that a chap named Huang Zhangmo would gamble every year in Australian casinos. He was a whale. You know how you like big gamblers are known as whales? And you're like, yeah, these are guys who gamble like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or millions of dollars. This guy in American dollars was gambling over half a billion dollars a year Just in these Australian whale. casinos. Wow. I don't know if that makes him the biggest whale of all the whales, but like, holy crap. That's a lot of money to gamble. That is a lot of money to gamble. I, I, I agree. I agree with that. <laughs> I, I realize now, like, the joke would be that someone would make about how hedge funds are gambling with far more money than that. Emily, do you have a number? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to decide. I'm going to go with the easier one. I go with the easy one. It's zero. Oh, that's, that's a good number. Yeah, man. yeah, it's a good number. It's an interesting number. That is the number. I, I want to do this a few weeks ago, but I forgot. It's the number of S&P 500 companies without a woman on the board. So in other words, all S&P 500 companies now have at least one woman on their board. And this just happened. This company called it's an auto Copart. Yeah, yeah. A Dallas online auto something or other. And then this is pretty good progress, I guess. In 2012, there was like eight companies with no women. I think Skechers was one of them and maybe TiVo or something. And then California passed their law, their quota law that probably Anna doesn't like, I think. I don't like quotas, yeah. Um, but, I mean, the effect of it is now that, that the S&P 500 has zero all-male boards, which isn't a terrible thing. And if I'm following what I just said, I would now say, well, the data shows that perhaps having that quota is actually kind of helpful. Yeah, it's actually Ooh. kind of helpful. So. And there was a piece in, I don't know, Fortune mentioned it in their broadsheet newsletter recently. There's this whole notion that women on boards are all, all on multiple boards. Like there's no just it's like if you're on one board and you're a woman, they want you on all the boards. But that's actually a myth. So, it's a, there, yeah. there, there are there's like, plenty of women out there who can be on boards. There are like four or five women who are on four boards. Yeah. But it's That's not rare. a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. My number is $22.349 trillion. Okay. U.S. dollars. Is that U.S. GDP? It is the estimated GDP, U.S. GDP for 2020. Ooh. Look at that. So the reason I say that is because I think sometimes when people talk about the U.S. economy, and they talk about the U.S. in relation to other countries. They don't quite acknowledge how much bigger the U.S. economy is compared to other countries. And so I, I just think All right, that, so give us some comparisons. Is so, $22 billion a lot more than, say, Germany? Yes. China? Ger yes. Well, so China is obviously like an purchasing power parity. And I actually think European countries are interesting because I think very often when you're comparing or like when we're saying policies that the U.S. should have, and I'm not saying the U.S. shouldn't have these policies, but I'm just saying people compare to other countries like in Europe in particular. And, and they should be comparing it to the Eurozone as a whole, which is bigger than the U.S. No, right? it is not. It's not? It is a, a bit smaller. Okay. So if you're looking at an economy like Germany, it's, I think, around four and a half. Yes, it would be around four and a half trillion. Okay. Yeah. So and if you're talking about the U.K., like around three trillion. I mean, like that's what I mean. Twenty-one trillion dollars is legitimately really, really big, and it's. I mean, and when people say the healthcare system, the poor represents UK is only three, and after Brexit, it'll be two. Yeah. So, 
I'm just saying that I think Can't sometimes it. it's we a, cannot record yeah. an episode without mentioning Brexit. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's I, not I apologize to the friendly <laughs> chap who 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 wrote in with a Brexit question. We didn't answer your Brexit question, but maybe in a future episode. You never know. We'll, answer your Brexit question. It. There will be a no-deal Brexit on October the 31st, <laughs> and then we will have a, a whole Brexit episode. We could wear costumes. I'm kidding. I'm not wearing a costume. <laughs> it's a joke. But yes, the U.S. economy still, at least in nominal dollar terms, is hegemonic. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you, Emily, for answering many questions. Thank you, Anna, for answering even more questions. Thank you, everyone who wrote in with questions. We love your questions. We should do this more often. And if you want to ask more questions, the email address is slatemoneyatslate.com. We will talk about something else next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.